This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about some of the signs of the times. We're going to be doing that for the next couple of weeks, working through First uh, Corinthians as we do. And I shared with you this passage from Matthew 16, where Jesus basically was chastising those around him, not only his own disciples, but the Pharisees primarily, because they have the wisdom to be able to determine what the weather is going to be like, and yet they don't have the wisdom to be able to see the signs of the times. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. I mean, you're focusing on the things that don't really matter. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times in which we live. The same thing could be applied to us today. We are living in really amazing times because we have prophetic landmarks that prove to us that these are the last days that... uh Christians in centuries past did not. And primarily that's the reemergence of Israel as a nation. That was unheard of in generations past, but we saw it happen in May 14th, 1948, coming out of the Holocaust, and we've seen it's been the, the centerpiece of basically world politics and world peace ever since. We've seen it happen. We see the things that are going on. We've seen these, these peace accords that try to be made, but they've they're not, and, and it's really kind of amazing time in which we live. One of the things that opened my eyes to this the most was looking at the Ezekiel 38 and 39 passages about the reemergence of Israel from the Philadelphia church age, looking at the pulpit commentaries, for example, that were written in the mid-1800s, or some of the other writings, and there's no way when they looked at those passages, that they could ever possibly conceive they would be literally fulfilled. Every one of them spiritualized it. All Ezekiel 37 and 38 and 39 are talking about a, a reemergence of a spiritual Israel, which possibly is the church. They, they could never conceive that God was actually going to bring his people back from 2,000 years of exile into their own land, and we saw it. And so when the scripture talks about the last times or the latter days, it's talking about the times in which we live. Now, Jesus in Matthew 24 gave us some signs of the times. He talked about deception over and over again. If you remember, we went over that a couple months ago. He talked about deception, but he dealt with deception from the one who is doing the deceiving, uh, the you know, the Antichrist that's coming and, and false prophets and false teachers and, and be on your guard and be aware. He talked about, um, wars and rumors and wars and pestilence and, you know, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. He focused on that. But by the time Paul and Peter are writing their epistles, they're also focusing on the deception, but they're fo- focusing the deception not on the one who deceives, but on those who have been deceived and have defected and apostatized from the church. Look at what it says here about the latter times. This is 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that when, in the latter times, in the times in which we live right now, some, 
not all, but some will depart from the faith. They will leave. They will apostatize, as the word goes. How? How is that possible? How are they being deceived? Because they're giving heed to deceiving spirits, satanic spirits, and they're believing the doctrine of demons that are the antithesis of what Christ teaches. We have 2 Timothy talks about this, and this is this admonition that Paul gives to Timothy as his last letter, the last chapter of his last letter before Paul dies. And this is the passage, of course, that that pastors are given this charge when they're ordained. And he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Timothy, this is what you must focus on in the time in which we live. Preach the word, not preferences, not themes, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You're to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Why is that so important? Verses three through five. For the time will come, not yet, but the time will come in the future when they, not us, not you, but they, this other group of people will not endure sound doctrine. Well, what will they do? They, according to their own desires and the Laodicean church age, hearing what we want to hear, the the narcissism we talked about last week, but their own desires, because I have a need that needs to be met. I have itching ears. I have felt needs that I I want God to, to make this my best life now, that they will heap. doesn't say that they will gather, but they will literally heap up in great piles for themselves, teachers, and they, watch this, this is their action, will turn their ears away from the truth. That's what they do. And the demonic side of this is they will be turned aside to fables. It doesn't say that they turn their ears away and they turn aside to fables. One precedes the others. Fancy things, things that that aren't based on truth, these doctrines of demons that have a tendency of being all about us. But Timothy, understanding this, you be watchful in all things. You endure afflictions because it will come, and you do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Over and over again, we see In the latter days, in the last days, at the end times, there's this defection that will take place away from the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, if you understand the context here, Paul was in this church for about three weeks, and he had to leave because of persecution. And supposedly some sort of letter or spirit or some sort of teaching arised in the church that the day of Christ had already come. And since the day of Christ had already come, those who had died in Christ were lost. And so they're really struggling with that. So Paul is sending them this letter back, instructing them about the day of Christ and some of the things that will precede his coming. And he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless first the falling away comes. First, before 
Christ returns, there will be a falling away from the truth. Now, these are not people that have never known Christ, have never made an allegiance to Christ, had never been part of the church. You can't fall away from something that you first weren't standing in. These are people who claimed faith in Jesus Christ, and yet, like the parable of the sower, they fell away. The word, this is the word that we get apostasy from. It's mentioned two times in Scripture, and it means to depart, to forsake, or literally the phrase that we use is apostatize or apostate. It means a rebellion or a revolt. It is a deliberate defection from a formally held religious position. Uh, someone who defects from the faith is someone who at one time embraced it but said, I'm not interested, I'm out of here, it doesn't make sense to me anymore, I have this higher understanding, this higher learning, I, I know more than what the Bible teaches. In the history of the Scripture, there's always been an element of apostasy. There's always been Hymenaeus and, and uh, Alexander. There have always been the enemies of Christ. There's always been people, let's say, in the Laodicean church age. There's always been this small group of, of people, but it's not until the end times that this apostasy reaches its peak. And the people who apostatize do it proudly. They do it excitingly, I have apostatized. I have now seen the light. I feel freer than I ever have before. Second Timothy chapter 3. But know this. Well, what? That in the last days, the last days, perilous times will come. And then he goes on to list how perilous these times are. Now, there have been times in the past, but Timothy is talking about within a church setting. He describes those as people be lovers of themselves. We talked about last week about narcissism. Uh, I think Krista stated that some of the studies that she's read that said that in our nation right now, 30%, 30% of the adult population is either a narcissist or has serious narcissistic tendencies. What is it going to be like in 10 years? What is it? Who are your children going to marry? I mean, if it's 30% now, and this was unheard of 20 years ago, now it's so rampant in our land, this lover of self, and we talked about social media and stuff of that nature. This is part of the perilous times that will come. There'll be lovers of money, selling their soul just to be able to make a buck. There'll be boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. They'll be unthankful, entitled unholy, unloving, unforgiving. They're slanderers. They have no self-control. They're brutal, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. And here's the key thing, having a form of godliness. Wow. So these people aren't just saying, I'm serving Satan. They have a form of godliness, a semblance of godliness. They think they're godly, but they deny the godliness of Christ has any power, any miracle-working dudamas power. If Again, I know you don't belong to the groups that I belong to, these <coughs> pastor groups and stuff of that nature. It is insane, the stuff that's going on now among pastors with just... Uh, with Trump and with just stuff in the world right now. It's, it's incredible. I mean, and on a negative sense, it's like, 
It's like, well, I believe in the gospel, but I don't believe in the miracles. I don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of death. I don't believe that Christ is any more than a good man that I could follow his principles and live a good life. So in other words, I have a form of godliness, but I don't believe in any power of the gospel. Because if I believe there's a power behind that, then I will have to align my life with that power. And the scripture says, we're to have nothing to do with those people. Nothing. Why? Because bad company corrupts good character. We're to have nothing to do with them, whether they're in our family, whether they're in our church setting, whether they're Facebook friends, nothing to do with someone like this. In the latter days, last one, just so you'll know it's not all Paul, here's 2 Peter. Know this first. That scoffers will come. Mockers will come. When? In the last days. And why will they do that? Because they're walking according to their own lust, saying, really? Really, if God was gonna, if God was coming, he would have already come. And the fact of the matter is that there is no God because I'm on a blaspheme God and look, he hasn't struck me dead. Mockers and scoffers come saying, where is the promise of his coming? For as the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing ever changes. Last one, Jude. But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what word was those that we told you that there would be mockers? When? In the last times. Who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. They are sensual people. And again, if you were on Tuesday when we went through Jude, the word sensual here means soulish. It means the kind of, of life that's, that, a, that someone has akin to an animal. It's just a physical life. It's a fleshly life. It's not a spiritual life. These people cause divisions because they're not saved, because they don't have the spirit. I mean, who would they be causing divisions with? Within the church, which is why... Jude is writing this letter. It seems primarily that one of the greatest signs of the end times is the apostasy and the abandonment of the faith or the downgrading of the faith to once it was the center of my life, now it's just a set of principles that I can flaunt anytime I want because I have my own lust and my own desires and my own way of thinking about that. You will find this in your family. You will find this with your children. You will find this with your coworkers. You'll find it with, with people who claim to be believers in Christ, especially as we see that day approaching. So how do we respond? I mean, how do we answer the mockery when people say, prove to us your God exists? Do we try to do that? If I could just prove to them that God exists, everything would be okay. I mean, how do we defend our faith against an increasingly hostile culture, and we're defending the faith of an unseen God. I mean, what are we to do? How are we to do this? Well, there's a, there's a whole study called apologetics. And apologetics is basically where we try to learn facts about Christ in the Bible and stuff of that nature so that when someone asks us a question like, prove to me Christ exists, we can show them verifiable data and we can pull up the ancient records and we can answer all their questions in the idea that somehow if we answer all their questions that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is not true. 
It's not true. Now, here's what R.C. Sproul says. He says, the defense of the faith is not a luxury or intellectual vanity. It is a task appointed by God that you should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Scripture talks about that as you bear witness before the world. But the reason for the hope inside of you is not to convince them. It is primarily to convince you, you, that you believe and why you believe. God doesn't need to be defended. I don't have to prove God. If if, if Tim's lost and proved to me God exists, there's no amount of evidence I could give Tim to prove God exists if he continues to live in his unbelief. Plus, salvation is something that is granted to us. Faith is imparted to us by a sovereign God that helps us become the elect. You cannot lead someone to Christ by answering all their questions about faith and the Scripture. You can't. Why? Because faith in him is a gift of God. Before God imparts that faith, the lost are incapable of believing the God, incapable of believing the gospel. To them, we're going to look at today, even the greatest amount of our faith in the cross of Christ is moronic and foolishness and senseless and idiotic, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So is apologetics important? Absolutely. It is vital, but it is not in the way that you might think. Let me give you an example. I I learned a profound truth by selling Herbalife back in the early 80s. Uh, everybody's involved with a multi-level marketing deal. Mine was Herbalife, and my dad told me to get on it, and I l- took this stuff, and I lost like 16 pounds. I mean, I weighed 194 back then and thought I was huge. Boy, if I could just go back to huge. Uh, you know, and I lost 16 pounds, and I really felt great, and I saw the, the opportunity, and so I started selling it, and I mean, it was incredible. It was a combination of these meal replacements and these herbs and all that kind of stuff. And about two years into it, because Herbalife was sweeping the land, the Senate decided to run a hearing against Herbalife. And they had the founder of the company, who was Mark Hughes, who wasn't a scientist. He was a high school dropout. He was the promoter of the product. They had him up there, and they were just chastising him something fierce because uh, he didn't understand how all the herbs worked together in it because he had a whole scientific community that did that. And I remember, I'll never forget this, I remember that all these senators were up there and they were just chastising. What makes you an authority on weight loss? And Mark Hughes, he was as fit as they could be, Mark Hughes said, well, if you guys, I'll never forget this, I'm watching it live on television, if you guys are such authorities on this, why are you so fat? <laughs> you know, why are you so fat? And it's true. You know, it's true. And, and so, you know, we had these meetings on basically when people would ask now because the government had, you know, raised these questions. You know, how do you answer the questions about, well, how do these particular herbs work in weight loss or whatever? And the response was this, and it was so true. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how all these herbs work together. I'll tell you what I do know. What I do know is I started taking this product two months ago. I've lost 16 pounds. I feel better than I ever have in my entire life. And if you would take the product too, I think the results I have are the same results you would have. From a Christian perspective, I don't know where Cain got his wife. 
I don't know, uh, you know, if God is so great, he can create a rock so big, even he can't pick up. I don't know about all that kind of stuff. But I tell you what I do know, that Jesus Christ came into my life and changed me. And from an Herbalife perspective, I'm not fat and obese yelling at people who are thin and lost weight because they don't like what I have become. Jesus says that he is in the, he's the light of the world and he now exists in us. And so the purpose, one of the purposes of understanding your faith and understanding apologetics, is we're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks, is so that you can confidently be that light in darkness. Not to make you a scholar to answer all their questions, because even if you do, a committed lost person still refuses to believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Look at this. For the message, or literally preaching, of the cross is foolishness. We've talked about this. It's morana. It's where we get the word moronic. It means folly, absurdity, moronic, stupid, senseless, foolhardy. It's insane. I was looking at a, I was looking in a meme just this last week where some lady was saying, um, that, oh yes, I, I've been told that I must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus raised from the dead, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but I don't because I'm not insane. Yeah, you're lost. Your foolishness. I mean, the most crucial part of your salvation to a lost person is stupid. It makes no sense at all. It made no sense to you until all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gave you this faith and something quickened inside of you and what seemed moronic now is power and life and strength. And you accepted it on faith and it became everything to you even before you knew all the apologetic arguments. You just knew. You just believed. And that gift of belief is something given to you. The message of the cross is foolishness, not to everybody, but to just those who are perishing. When you tie this verse with the Romans 1 passage, uh, Romans 2 passage, and you find out that there is none that seeks after God, no, not one, then you realize that answering someone's questions may help them in their search for Christ, but you will never win someone to Christ by giving them all the evidence they need. Because it still has to be coupled with faith. And faith comes from God, placing it in your heart to embrace him. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, being delivered, made whole, preserved, safe from danger or loss, it, the message of the cross, is the power of God. There's nothing more overwhelming and powerful than that. The gospel message to those that are perishing makes no sense at all. They will become angry about it. They'll become upset about it like those senators who are chastising someone who was selling a product that they could benefit from, but instead they wanted just to sit up there in their obesity saying, that well, it can't be true what you're saying. Well, here is all the evidence. Doesn't matter. We don't like it. Why is that? And how do we know? And how do we know that this statement is true? 
How do we know that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing? Paul tells us by quoting an Isaiah passage. Here's what he says. For it is written, Old Testament authority here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing, nothing the understanding of the prudent. And that comes from Isaiah 29. And if you would turn there really quick, since I have no idea what time it is. Thank you very much, Hannah, by doing that. Turn to Isaiah 29. And let me show you the context of this passage. It's really amazing. From verses 13 all the way to verse 16, three times this passage in Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. It's a powerful passage, and it talks about the blindness that comes on those people who are disobedient. We'll begin with verse number 9. It says, pause and wonder. This is Isaiah 29, verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourself and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drinks. So, so, so what is it? Why are they stumbling around in the dark? For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, the spirit of slumber, the spirit of the inability to understand the truth, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the seers. The prophets and the seers are to hear from God, can't even hear from God. Why? Verse 11, the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one as who who is literate and said, read this, please. And he says, I I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I I am not literate. Therefore, the Lord says, verse 13, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. By the way, do you remember that verse? Jesus quoted that in Matthew 15. And their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. Therefore, verse 14, Behold, I will again do a marvelous work among the people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. That's 1 Corinthians 1.19. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you... Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For the thing made shall say of him who made it, he did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of one who formed it, he has no understanding. That's Romans 9.21. The reality is that this prophecy of this blindness is being fulfilled before our very eyes. For example, just in current times, I think it was... Earlier in 2019, Joshua Harris, the I Kiss Dating Goodbye guy, the guy that pastored a, uh, a megachurch for many years, Joshua Harris, the author of several books, decided to divorce, divorce his wife, uh, forsook his Christian faith. I read to you his statement regarding that, that now he sees the bright colors of the universe since he has rejected the God of his youth, and uh, it is believed by many has embraced the homosexual lifestyle. This man, uh, Marty Sampson, is one of the key writers for Hillsong. A lot of the Hillsong praise music was written by this guy. 2019, he says, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. I don't really believe in the gospel message, and so I'm walking away from the faith. And then publicized it like like it's a really great thing. 
Just recently, these two guys, Rhett and Link, uh, they're not pastors, but they're pretty funny guys that my kids have followed for years. They have a YouTube channel and a um, good mythical morning kind of channel and all that kind of stuff, and they do a lot of funny things. And they were uh, Christians. They went on mission trips. They at one time thought they were going to go into the ministry. Uh, about two years ago, they renounced their faith, especially the guy doing this with his eye, renounced the faith. And the reason why he did that was because that he could not equate his upbringing as an engineer and science and evolution and stuff of that nature with the claims of Christ. And if you listen to his podcast where he talks about his journey, he's not angry, he's not upset, he's just sad because he elevated the wisdom of man and his own mind and his own understanding beyond what God says and therefore it led him to what he calls himself right now as a hopeful agnostic. And you find this happening all the time. This guy uh, stood before men and proclaimed the gospel. These guys didn't, but they still have a huge audience. And see, 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 it's, it's, it's happening. People are wising up and realizing the gospel of Jesus Christ is just a bunch of fables. Well, sure it is to those people who listen to the doctrines of demons and who are perishing. But to those of you who have been infused with life and faith, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Verse 20. Got a couple questions and then an answer. I love this. God asked some questions. And it's, it's his exaltated wisdom versus man's wisdom, what we think is important. Here's question number one. Where is the wise? Literally, it means the respected, learned philosophers or experts. Where are the guys that are on all the talk shows? Where are the guys that, you know, claim to know all of this kind of stuff because they have their PhD, two SO4s behind their name? Where are they? Question. Where is the scribe or literally the writers or the scholars, the PhDs, the guys that, that, you know, teach the classes in seminary and college, the, the high school teachers. Where, where are they? Where is the disputer of this age, the debater, the, the reasoner, or what we would call them today, the influencer? I love that. I'm an influencer. Well, what does that mean? I have so many people following me. Well, what are you influencing them? Well, how to do my hair and what music to listen to. And, I mean, where, where are those people? The disputers of this age, the, the people who argue and want to debate, where are they? Question. Has not God, his job, has not God made foolish, moronic, the wisdom of this world, the word cosmos here is the order and system of the world. Has not God chosen to make foolish the wisdom of this world? Absolutely. Absolutely. But why? Why? Why did God decide to humiliate human wisdom? I mean, he didn't have to. He could have, he could have adopted like the philosophy of the Gnostics, where basically if you study hard enough and you believe philosophy enough and you separate yourself from matter because matter is evil and only spirit is good, that you would receive this gnosis, you would receive this higher understanding, this enlightenment, which would allow you to become like God. 
And so therefore, he would honor those people who strove hard to listen to the wise and the scribes and the debaters and the disputers of this age to achieve some sort of climatic experience. But he didn't. He didn't because that's the antithesis of faith. Instead, he did exactly the opposite. And he took everything away except faith. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, which, by the way, is higher than man's wisdom, would you agree? The world, through its wisdom, through the wisdom of God decided that whatever man, this created fallen creature, whatever wisdom it comes out with, the wisdom did not know or choose to know God, that God decided to be pleased through the foolishness of the message preached only to those who are perishing, to save those who believe. It's like the Lord said, okay, to show you how incredible I am and so that your faith doesn't rest on your own wisdom, your own understanding, your own learning, but the wisdom, uh, but your faith rests clearly just on me and who I am, that I will take what you think is foolish and I will save those who believe. That it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believed. It pleased him to reveal himself by faith, not by what can be seen or what can be scientifically proved. And that is the nature and definition of faith. You know, we try to take faith and tie it with scientific evidence, and we want to find scientific evidence, which always changes. Do you realize at one point in time the world was flat? And do you realize at one point in time that modern science says that you have to bleed yourself in order to get well? And do you realize at one point in time the science of the world says that when you look in the sky, all it was is a big bowl with holes punched in it, and the light of what's outside the bowl is shining through, and that's what stars are? And people accepted it. And pretty soon, this is, this is a side note here. Pretty soon you're going to find out in 20 or 30 years, or maybe longer, that people are going to go, you did what to treat cancer? You know what I mean? But God decided that he wants to bypass all of that. So your faith can't rest on men or man's logic or reasoning or anything or scientific proof. I believe because I had it proved to me. No, that's not faith. Look what he says in the next verse, or when he starts talking about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not provable, not seen. And it's by faith that the elders received a great testimony. Well, give me the biggest example you can. How about the creation? Well, it was this big bang theory, and then there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was an explosion of nothing, and it slung nothing into all the whatever we have to... Really? You know how insane that is? I know, but it's better than believing in God. Because if I believe in God, I have to believe in his morals. I have to believe in his, his attitude. I have to believe that, that I'm subject to that. Look what he says here. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the world of God, word of God. He's spoken into existence. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. This is what God says, and this is what science says. God says, or pseudoscience, God says that this is what it is, 
and I'm not going to defend it. Science says, that's ridiculous. You can't believe that. You're a fool to believe that because we're going to show you these pictures in the Smithsonian of all these apes and all that kind of stuff until you realize, well, I won't even go into that. You have a choice. I mean, how do we know? How do we know this is true? Well, I have a choice. I have to believe him or I don't. I either accept God's word for what it says or I don't. One of the things that led Rhett and Link away from their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is because they tried to hedge their bet. I want to believe in, I want to believe in what the world says, but I also want to believe in the Bible. And because there's sometimes this tension between these two, I'm going to place my faith in evolution over here, but in Jesus over, you will lose every single time. It's a door that is opened up so you can believe the doctrines of demons. This is what he says here. For Jews request a sign. Why? Because there's no faith involved in a sign. If you're really the son of God, Jesus, come down from the cross and we will all believe. You know what his response was? Yeah. Show us a sign. Why? Even if someone was raised from the dead, he said, you still wouldn't believe. Greeks seek after wisdom. There's no faith in wisdom. So if I can understand it, if I can see it, if it makes sense in my mind, then I'll believe. But if it doesn't make sense in my mind, then I won't. So my mind, my intellect, my understanding, my sincerely held convictions become God in my life. There's no faith there. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called... That's an effectual calling when God reaches out and places his faith in you. To both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. But what about the wisdom of the world? What about science and logic and rational thinking? I keep thinking about the the guy on Nacho, Nacho Libre. Do you remember? I just believe in science. Dude, you're homeless, but I believe in science, you know? What about all of that? I mean, where does all that fit in? Here's what God says about it. The foolishness of God, if that's even possible, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So whatever science and logic and rational thinking is, and I'm a very logical, rational guy, It is subservient to faith in him, to faith in him. We either, if we understand it, we believe it. If we don't understand it, we still believe it because that's who God is. So we have a choice. We can trust God at his word, regardless of what we've been taught in school or the media by our culture, or we can become double-minded. We can hedge our bet and try to hold on to the wisdom of this fallen world and also to the power of God at the same time, and good luck with that. Good luck with that. You will end up, if you're not careful, you will end up eroding the faith of your children. You will have your own faith eroded by believing doctrines of demons, like it happened to Rhett and Link and many others. You will find that there's passages of Scripture that you don't like, so you will set those aside and build some sort of rational argument in your mind that satisfies your tension to be able to accept that, and you will lose, lose. But God has given us a God, God has given us a task here. I'm just going to read to you verses 26 through 31. 
and finishing this chapter. And here's what he says. For you see your calling, brethren. This is God's calling for our lives. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why is that? Why is that? I remember before I got saved, I was at seminary trying to find God, and I know he was there. I just never ran into him. And I remember I was so angry and bitter at God, I walked into the cafeteria of all these people called into the ministry, going to Southern Seminary, trying to become pastors and evangelists and stuff like that. And I looked at these weenie guys. I looked at these, these, a lot of a feminine kind. I was very judgmental. And I looked, and I remember I looked up at God, and I said, if this is the best you got, don't say much about you. If you're going to call people God, call Tony Robbins. I mean, call these powerful guys and rich guys. Call these guys that, that can make it on their own. And God's response is always no. No, because then they get the glory. And I don't get the glory. And I know I've shared the story with you about Homer Lindsay, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, when I was beginning to understand about the gospel message, and he was frumpy, and he was overweight, and he was marshmallowy kind of guy, and just real, real non what kind of man that I respected. And when you had a conversation with him outside of him behind the pulpit, he couldn't carry on a conversation real well. He was just like the guy at a party that would be standing in the corner, and nobody would have anything to do with him. And he stood behind the pulpit, and he was electrifying. I mean, he was, I mean, God was moving in my life, listening to him. And I never understood why until he shared on the pulpit. He said, here's why God chose me. Because there's no way, if you know me, that you, you can realize that anything that I'm doing comes from me. It all has to be God. Absolutely. That's what it says here. You're calling, brethren. You're not college presidents. You're not PhDs. You're not the kind of people that end up on the Saturday night talk shows and Sunday morning talk shows. Those people weren't chosen primarily. But who has? Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's me. To put to shame the wise. And the God has chosen the weak things of the world. That's me to put to shame the things that are mighty. And God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised by the world. God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's us. That's the power we have in Christ. Why? Verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Because here's who you are. Verse 30. But of him, or because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So let me ask you a couple questions in almost closing. The reason for apologetics is not for you to be equipped to be able to win every argument out there with a lost person. Although if you can, that's wonderful. The purpose of apologetics is for you, you, to believe wholeheartedly in what the gospel teaches. If you have a question about something, you, you, you look at 
apologetics writing and stuff of that nature, and you had that answered question, question answered, absolutely. Because salvation is a sovereign act of God. And until God imparts faith, there's no argument, there's no debate, there's no incredible gospel presentation, there's no Billy Graham, as good as he was, he was sharing faith with my brother. Answering every one of his questions, I had Billy Graham and Josh McDowell, and they're all standing there and, you know, knocked every, every question he had out of the park. Unless God imparts faith to my brother, it is still foolishness. It is still moronic. It still doesn't make sense. Jesus never, ever, ever gave signs to get people to believe in him. So, do you believe in the creation account in Genesis? Exactly what it says? Well, there's a school that showed me all these, you know. Yeah, well, they didn't show you the other evidence either about how most of the stuff that you see about millions and millions of years was caused by the flood. Do you believe in that? Do you believe in a virgin birth? I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in a floating axe head? Elisha, do you believe in that? Did it really happen? Defy logic and gravity and, and, and natural principles and laws in the world we live by? Do you believe in the whole lion's den thing or the fiery furnace? Do you believe in the fall of Jericho was accomplished by a bunch of guys going around and just praising the Lord, blowing a trumpet, and the walls caved down? Do you believe that? Do you believe that sometimes, sometimes, God commands things that for us don't seem so good, like wiping out whole nations. Well, that's, that's infanticide. I mean, that's, that's, that's terrible. How can a loving God do that? Well, I'm not asking you to understand it. God knew exactly what he was doing. And if you really want to know why he did that, I'd be love to sit down and tell you. Question I had, I researched it, I understand it, and now we move on. That's what apologetics does. You believe God rewards faith because punishes unbelief? Are there parts of God's word that you don't believe? And if so, you're on very dangerous ground. You're opening yourself up to doctrines of demons. You're opening yourself up between competing worldviews. You're opening yourself up to God because I don't understand it. I refuse to believe it. And your faith now is going to be based on only what you can conceive. And God is far greater than that. Why? Jesus said that the deception at the last times will be so great that if it wasn't, if it was even possible, the elect would fall. The elect would fall. Can you imagine? I just don't believe that. Why? Because your reasoning is higher than God? Because your doubts are greater than God's grace? I mean, how does that work out? And sometimes, it's part you need to understand, sometimes God encourages our faith because that's what he's concerned about is your faith so that you can be light in darkness. He encourages our faith by allowing us to see just a glimpse of what he's really like, what he what he truly is like. And, and when I talk to people and they share these experiences with him, you know, it, it wasn't something for everybody. It was just something for me. They end up being these mountaintop spiritual experiences in their life. You ever had one? 
I would like to close today by letting you hear of one that I heard for the first time yesterday. Roberta? Yesterday, I was lost with the children. I wasn't going to do this. Um, Nick told the story about um, feeding the thousands with just two fish and three loaves of bread. And he brought up some very good points that for the kids to understand what was happening here. First of all, um, I think you could preach a year's sermons on, on that one verse. I mean, on one, that one story, because there's so many facts in that story that we overlook. And he was talking about the different things that um, God could have done instead of multiplying miraculously the bread and the fish. He could have just prayed for those people and said, fill their bellies so they are full and they will listen to my message. He could have done that. And that doesn't sound too far off from what we know of what God can do. Or he could have sent dominoes in to feed them all with pizza. You know, just different things he was saying that God could have done a miracle any other way he wanted to, but he chose to take that little boy's lunch, those five loaves of bread and two fishes. And I was thinking, yeah, because we all know you want to eat more carbs than you do protein, right? So maybe there's a message. But anyway, (laughs) so when he was finished and I was supposed to read a story, I had a story about um, St. Valentine. And his the martyrdom of St. Valentine and how Valentine's Day came about. But after he was finished, I went, oh, I was just remembering how I experienced that miracle. I worked with an um, inner city ministry. And what we did was uh, once a week we would go down to the city park, the square, and we would, the minister who was doing it was from South Africa. And one of the things he said when he prayed about this ministry was, God told him, I want you to feed the people first, and then we'll have a little church service. They are not required to stay for the church service to get the food. And God, he said God was just like matter-of-fact about that, and that's how we are doing it. So we decided we'd ask people in the church to, some of the ladies, to make big pots of soup. And they would bring it every day on that day, drop it off for one of us. They would drop it off to one of us, the workers. And then another man who um, worked for the business where you go and buy sandwiches out of a machine, he, his boss told him at the end of the week he could go to all of those places that he put sandwiches in, and whatever was left over we could use for the ministry. So we had these big coolers full of sandwiches, And sometimes we'd have 50 people show up. Sometimes there would be 150 people. Sometimes there would be 200 people. We never knew who we were going to feed or how many. So this particular, a lot of times we had like big four or five or six pots of soup. But this one day, I will never forget, I'm serving out of one pot of soup. 
And so what we would do is we take the ladle, fill the cup, and as the men came by, they got their cup of soup, and they could take. Uh, they gave them a sandwich. We had, we served them. We didn't have them serve themselves. We took care of them and we blessed them. Well, this one day, we had one pot of soup. That was not the day that 25 people showed up. Okay, so I'm looking in the pot and I'm going, "Oh, I only have one pot of soup." It was kind of a chilly day, and I looked up. <clears throat> Here I am, you know, serving the soup, and I looked up. And the line would be, to help you visualize it, completely around this room, maybe a little bit more, of people if they were just lined up. <clears throat> so I'm serving the soup and serving the soup. I look down in the pot, and there's this much soup left. And we're not talking a big pot. We're talking an average-sized pot that's about this big soup pot. So I went, oh, Lord, we've got to feed all these people, and that's all the soup that's left. And that scripture came to my mind, and I said, okay, let's prove this, <laughs> okay? Let's prove God good in this. So only the people who were right next to me knew what was about to happen. So I, I laid my hand on the side of the pot, and I said, God, please multiply this soup so we can feed all of these people. And so I was just a little, a little nervous about it. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Do not look inside the pot at all. Do not. And I was like, oh, that's so hard to do because I'm looking to see how far this thing is going to go. Cups of soup do you think would have been left in that pot with this much? I asked the kids, one, two, three, so I started serving the soup, and I was just, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, and I just kept, and, and he told me, fill the cups. The next thing I look up, all those people had been fed, and a bunch more people walked up. I was like, you go, God. I just kept filling the soup up. When I was done, I said, I was so excited. Oh, I looked down in the pot. There was this much soup left when I looked down the pot after feeding everyone. And I was like, oh, God, this is awesome. I just want to tell everybody. So the girls that were here next to me knew what happened, and we were all. And I said, oh, I'm going to go up and tell the pastor when he starts the service, I want to tell them about this miracle. And he told me no. I thought, well, this will bring you glory. Why would you not want me to tell everybody what happened? Was he said, I didn't do this miracle for them. I did it for you. And I was like, whoa. And that day I realized that my faith just went through the roof. I couldn't see how he was doing it because he wouldn't let me look. But it wasn't magic. It was a miracle. And what he taught me, one of the things he taught me from that was, and I forget it, and I have to be reminded, just like today, don't look at what little you have. Look at what God has given you for a ministry and keep feeding. Just keep feeding. Regardless, if you're praying for a miracle right now, don't look at what little you have. Don't try to figure out how your body's going to get healed. He's going to do it. 
He's going to do it miraculously. You are not the one to figure it out. Because you can try all day and you never will. But take that little bit, regardless what you're praying for, that little bit, and don't try to figure out how he's going to do it. Just let him. And sometimes he's going to do a miracle for you that he doesn't tell how you tell anybody else because he loves you that much. I heard that yesterday and I realized you guys need to hear that. Because sometimes, as Roberta shared, sometimes God just does things for you. Other people get blessed, but he does it for you to build your faith because you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You, with Christ in you, is the greatest calling card he has for the glory of his son. Amen? Let me pray.